Welcome to the 11th podcast of the Merseyside Pensioners Association, recorded on July the 17th, 2020. It's not just for pensioners, but for everyone. Is the government guilty of crimes against humanity? Today we hear from a range of experts who describe how the government has caused thousands of unnecessary deaths and made a fortune for their friends in the process. We go to Tower Hamlets, where the Labour Council is threatening to sack every worker who won't agree to having their conditions of service eroded. Our senior nurse practitioner returns to explain what social distancing means for the ruling class. We have an impressive lineup of guests for you today with Merseyside MP Ian Byrne, austerity experts Vicky Cooper and Professor David White, who edited the groundbreaking book The Violence of Austerity, author of Global Health versus Private Profit, John Lister, and Dr. Alex Scott Samuel. And we have a special message from Merseyside Pensioners Association Chair, Julie Lyon-Taylor. Your last months have coincided with the greatest crisis our country has faced since the Second World War. And so the first thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you for the incredible effort you've put into doing the right thing over the past weeks and months. I want you to know that your efforts have been worth it. Because of you, because of your sacrifice, we've saved hundreds of thousands of lives. That was the Prime Minister congratulating us all earlier this week. Well, no, actually, he was congratulating school leavers. But the speech was like a grotesque parody of the elite Etonian universe that Boris Johnson inhabits. Many years from now, people are going to look back and they're going to ask you what it was like to live through the lockdown. Well, pretty grim, really, particularly if you were one of 14 million people living in poverty or one of millions using food banks or if you were a child going hungry or suffering from malnutrition. As we face the challenge of reopening our society cautiously, carefully, we have an incredible opportunity to do things differently, to build back better, not just for the next few months, but for years and decades to come. Well, I'm not holding my breath on that one. To build back better, who comes up with these phrases? You mean to build back better for your rich mates. Every week there are fresh allegations about contracts worth millions that have been granted by the government without due diligence or public scrutiny. They claim they have to override the usual rules for public procurement because they are responding to an emergency. What about the pest control company in West Sussex called Pest Fix, which, according to the Good Law Project, has listed net assets of only £18,000. Without public advertisement or competition, the Tory government awarded Pest Fix a £32 million contract 
to supply surgical gowns they don't even make. A regular contributor to this programme, Dr Alex Scott Samuel, would like to have joined in the NHS 72nd birthday celebrations. However, because of his health, Alex, like many of us, is still shielding. Nevertheless, Alex sent this powerful recorded message to the Liverpool rally celebrating the 72nd birthday of the NHS. I'm very concerned that the government's premature relaxation of lockdown will cause a second wave of COVID-19 in Liverpool. Frankly, we have no idea of the true prevalence of COVID locally because the government has only just agreed to release community data, which are in any case a gross underestimate of the true picture because of inadequate testing. There's now general agreement among experts that the government caused 25,000 additional deaths because of the unnecessary delay in introducing lockdown. The full total of what's frankly corporate manslaughter is probably more like 40,000. That means that over 300 people in Liverpool died unnecessarily because of the direct incompetence of Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock and Simon Stevens. When will they be held to account? The council are doing the best they can but the inadequate advice and support from government means that people remain very vulnerable. Please take care and keep shielding. I wish the NHS a very happy 72nd birthday, but this comes at a very difficult time. The government has used the excuse of the pandemic to accelerate privatisation and outsourcing, and there's every sign that it will take advantage of the current situation to push through its long-term plan and continue undermining our hospital and primary care services. There's no good reason to change the principles of Bevan's NHS and in any forthcoming NHS consultation I urge you to fight to retain our NHS based on strong publicly provided primary and secondary care services. Health campaigner Dr Alex Scott Samuel. I've had a lot of emails asking where our Northwest NHS senior practitioner nurse has gone. Well, like hundreds of thousands of carers and health workers, she's been busy keeping the NHS going and saving lives. So I haven't spoken to you for a few weeks. And of course, since I last spoke to you, Dominic Cummings has been on his road trip and the government say things are getting better and better. What do you think? Well, it certainly might be getting better for the likes of Dominic Cummings and all the uh, the rest of the, the elite in London. I certainly don't think that's the case here today. I think this easing of the lockdown, Phil, is basically just giving the green light to people to, to socialise. I mean, I think the message is very unclear. All this about you can see people in your, in your back garden, you can have a bad barbecue, but it's, you know, it, it's all these little restrictions. 
most people, most working class people, abided by these rules. And there's been a little bit of a backlash, I think, about ordinary working people going out to parks and down on the beach. Not an awful lot of people have got big country estates or big houses or huge gardens to go to. So it's, it's mixed messages that's coming across. I mean, I was reading this morning. I mean, you, you just couldn't write this stuff. Boris Johnson's sister, Rachel Johnson, who was a journalist in London who has two houses, by the way, one in London and one outside in the shires, I would think, has been going to do her job. She's been going back to her house, the home where she's at, but then she's also been using her second home in London and also been going out to play tennis and being dropped off by people in cars. And so there's no social isolating going on there. You know, even when I was cycling, people were moving out the way, and that's what I've noticed. You know, it really is one rule for them and one rule for other people. And I really take it on board because I've seen a number of my friends and my daughter's friends in the past few weeks have lost elderly parents that they've never been able to go and sit with or go and hold their hand. And people who can just flout the rules are doing so. But, you know, our government, and Dominic... Cummins. He may not be an elected member of Parliament, but he's, he's certainly the person who's pulling the strings in 10 Downing Street. He's just basically put his fingers up and just lied all the way through it. Him and his wife, they did go up to Castle Barnard. He did go out, and all this talk of, you know, I went on a, a little 30 mile, a, a, you know, a half an hour trip there and a half an hour back to see if my eyesight would be okay. Have you ever heard such a ludicrous excuse in all your life? It's almost like saying, well, I've had a few drinks, but I'll just go out and drive my car just to see if I can ever okay to drive. It's tantamount to that. It's just, um, it's just the lion of all the, the hypocrisy of it all is really what sort of gets me. And I mean, I was thinking to myself, but I was thinking social distancing. What does social distancing mean? It means for the working class of this country that you're social distanced from the elite. Well, we've always done that because we've still got the good old class system still up and running in this country. So social distancing has always been there. The ruling classes have always done it. And I was actually thinking, you know, we might see the, the uh, younger members of the royal family now holding hands and shaking hands with people. But up to about 100 years ago, if you're a commoner, you were, you were more than socially isolated from, you know, the, the royal family. So social distancing has already been there. And I think it has that connotations of social distancing is social class distancing. Mm. And that's the way I've started to look at it now. Yeah. It's OK if you're in the ruling classes and you're in those people who are in those positions of power. But for ordinary working class people, social distancing can be looked at as a for me now. It's just become a form of control. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely think we should be still social, socially distancing. I think we've eased the lockdown far too early. 23 scientists now have already said the, the, the easing of this lockdown is coming too early. We are still not out of the danger zone yet. I think it was 26 senior UK academics. And these are the people that should be leading, you know, our government should be leading here. They should be setting the example for people. And for people who are flouting the rules, 
you know, they, they can't be seen to get away with it. The amount of people that have struck by the rules in the main have been ordinary working class people. And I read a really good article yesterday from a, a doctor that's working in a hospital and she said, you know, I just can't understand it. You know, I'm watching people. Their lives are ebbing, ebbing away and their loved ones are not allowed to, to be with them. And yet, we seem to accept that it's okay for Dominic Cummins and his wife and his child just to have a, a trip up to Durham and take another trip out. And it's no coincidence, is it, on the day that he went out to uh, Barnard Castle, it was his wife's birthday. People should come clean, but they're not going to because it is all smoking mirrors or shifting sands all the time. Talking of shifting sands, my niece is a nurse at the Royal Liverpool Hospital and was told in May to take all her leave before August, which is the time apparently when a second spike is expected. So why has the lockdown been eased? Well, I think people are easing the lockdown because the Tories are frightened that they can't stop the economic fall that we're going to go into. And so they're actually so frightened of it now that they're prepared, really, to put people's lives at risk and put the economy first. I mean, I've not been told by my employer, yes, to take all of my leave, but most people have have worked through. They haven't taken the leave because of the crisis that's going on. So whilst the government is saying there's a bit of an ease and a lockdown, well, people are still not getting the PPE. They're still, you know, places like intensive care units are still getting the PPE. But the ordinary wards where they're saying there's going to be a little bit of a, an easing up now, those are the wards that are going to be ones that are seeing those patients here again. And I just think that, you know, this is the pressure from big business to ease the lockdown. It's nothing to do with, you know, the, the fact that it's e- being eased because they were able to. This is all financial press- pressures, but this is the society that we live in. That's the pressure that, that they've done it. And there, at the end of the day, the economy comes first and the people come second. And I think that's really, that, that's just so obvious what it's all about. What do you think about the opposition in <laughs> Parliament just, to... Can I just say, I don't think there is any opposition. And they're doing absolutely... You just don't hear from them at all. Absolutely. It's almost like, well, we won't say anything because we're all in this together. Well, we're not all in this together. I think that's plainly obvious. The UK has got one of the highest death rates in the world. And one of the two of the worst places, are, it's here on Merseyside. The other place is Cumbria. And it's the, it's the, the working class area around Cumbria and the poorest area of Cumbria that's been hit the most. And the same in Liverpool. You've only got to look when they've actually done it region by region and ward by ward. The worst hit areas are those the poorer areas. Also, the Bain community has been particularly hit absolutely, hard. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, I really feel that they have... They've known all along that black and Asian, Asian minority ethnic people have been in a higher proportion and have done nothing about it. I can't speak for other areas, but certainly when you look at the list of people that have passed away, the majority of that, so there is a common denominator here somewhere. And actually, those people should be, are the ones who shouldn't, shouldn't be put, if they can, on the front line. But they're people who are just expendable. A lot of them were not necessarily qualified, they were carers, they're trained people in nursing homes. But, you know, we're just, you can almost see it going to go back to 
the same way as it was before. It's very nice people doing the happy clapping every week, but we should be clapping and demonstrating for people to have a proper wage. These are our carers who are they're, they're on the lowest pay, they have the worst conditions, they are working in the care, you know, working in care homes for people, and they're looking after our relatives and our family members. The likes of, of the rich in this society would probably need, never need to put their elderly relatives or somewhere into a, a care home. They're never going to be in that situation. I look at, like, Boris Johnson. <laughs> they're not going to be in your standard nursing homes or residential homes that we're used to here. All they say is, oh, yeah, it's fine. We'll keep these people on the lowest pay. We'll exploit them and we'll put them at the biggest risk. The NHS is not a charity. We are healthcare. We're highly highly trained and qualified people and that's the same in, in the care homes. They've already said they're going to be freezing wages. So thanks very much for doing all of this work, for all putting yourselves at risk, but we're actually going to cut your pay and cut all your conditions in the next couple of years. And, you know, for the people that work in the care homes, they were already the lowest paid and the least valued, really, you know. What do you think we should be doing about the people who have been responsible for all of these unnecessary deaths? Well, to be honest, uh, this this is what you tend to hear from, you know, the Labour Party. Oh, we're not in here to, to um, point, fi- point fingers and say who was responsible. Of course, people have to be responsible. People have to be accountable. There has been so many unnecessary deaths and there will continue to be. There will continue to be. We have to have an independent inquiry and that should be being organised now. Because look how long so many other independent inquiries take. They take years before they're fully established. We are already worrying about the fact that we're going to get this second wave because coronavirus is going to be here for quite a long time. There's an awful lot of people who still are not being referred into hospitals or reluctant to go into hospitals because they're still worried about catching COVID. And I understand their fear, to be honest, you know, because whilst the rules are being relaxed, and the lockdown, they're being relaxed for PPE as well. I've got friends who work in the hospital who say now they're now going and working in areas where they're told you can reduce down your PPE as if they're not scrambling around for it anyway. But you can reduce down your PPE so you're not at the same level before. You know, it's almost as if, well, we can spot the virus walking through the wards. This is an invisible virus. I've got no qualms that I think this this has not gone away and this easing of the lockdown has just been done by the government for economic reasons, not for the, not for the proper reasons. Do you think that Dominic Cummings is rigging SAGE to the benefit of the Tories so that they can argue that they can block Well, you know, I think the Tories are going to do two things. I'm going to think, one, it will be just so easy that when it comes to an independent inquiry, for them to say, well, we were following the science, we were following the science, the scientists got it wrong, so it was not our responsibility. But two-thirds of the people who were in that SAGE are employed directly by the government. Dominic Cummins has sat in on meetings at SAGE. He's not a scientist. There is another advisor who's also sat in on all of those meetings. So clearly the, the recommendations from SAGE are edited and they're certainly formulated by, by the government's view. Behind every statistic is a human story. Behind every death is a death that's affected a family and relatives and families in this country. The social distancing is fine for us, the working class people of this country, but they don't have to do anything 
they don't have to social, socially distance themselves or anything. It's not going to be their relatives and their family who are in care homes. It's not going to be their relatives and families who are going into, you know, the ordinary general hospitals. It's not their relatives and families who are going to have to wait for diagnosis or for investigations and have to wait long times, you know, because they probably all have private health insurance and they'll all get it done a lot earlier. But for most people, that's just not going to be the case. It's always good to get an inside view of what's happening in the NHS from our Northwest Senior Nurse Practitioner. Vicky Cooper is a lecturer in social policy and criminology at the Open University and David White is Professor of Socio-Legal Studies at the University of Liverpool and the editor of How Corrupt is Britain. They both joined me earlier and I asked them if there is enough evidence relating to the government's response to this pandemic to build a case of criminal negligence against the UK government. I think if you begin to look at particularly some of the issues around the very clear warnings that were made by public health experts, including the powerful one that I remember from early March from Anthony Costello, who was the former World Health Organization, uh, official who who was basically saying unless there is a lockdown now and we learn and, we, and unless we learn from Spain and Italy then thousands of people will die and of course we know that's that's what happened and that was the moment at which the government I think was most exposed for its herd immunity strategy and, and Costello amongst other senior a, num- a very large number of other senior public health experts were saying this herd immunity strategy is not only reckless but it's likely to cause thousands of deaths Um, and there are individuals within government who heard those warnings ignored them I don't know precisely what evidence a policing a police investigation would would uncover but I think it's very likely there would be enough uh, evidence for a corporate manslaughter prosecution against a particular government agency it would have to be a particular government agency but the problem we have of course is the second point sorry that was the first point in, in answer to your question Probably yes. Well, the second answer is that's not really how things work. We are not. We can't expect the police to investigate the, the the government or a government agency or even an individual within government on this basis because that that's not the way the police work. They will see this as a policy matter and as a, a balance of argument and and so on. So I'm not necessarily. I think it's important to to make those calls, to to expose the contradictions in law, but it's not a campaign that we're going to win on. That's that's probably most obvious in terms of Grenfell. You know, there have been calls for corporate manslaughter prosecution in Grenfell and 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 we've we've got we've got nowhere. So I think is the government criminally negligent? I would say absolutely. Are they going to be held accountable in a court for that? I would say absolutely not. What do you think, Vicky? Well I mean it's it's definitely the case now and it certainly will be in the next couple of months and then after that we will have enough evidence certainly to show um, negligence on the part of the government and the government's mishandling um, of providing a duty of care that's its fundamental purpose is to provide a duty of care to people at risk and it's not done that and we've already got abundant evidence you know, of the ways in which the government has ignored experts' opinions, ignored experts' statistical reviews, 
um, in order to um, absolve themselves of the mishandling of COVID. So we've seen, for example, at the minute, the, the scandal is the level of deaths in care homes. And the level of deaths in care homes occurred because the government ignored public, public health of England advice not to discharge patients from hospital into care homes. And the government ignored that advice and it did discharge up to 25,000 patients from hospital into care homes at the height of the pandemic, which has resulted in the scale of deaths that we're seeing in care homes right now. And, and those deaths are continuing as well. They're, 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 they're ongoing. And so essentially we have the evidence, but I have to agree with Dave in that that evidence is not necessarily going to result in a criminal prosecution. We have, you know, several cases, as Dave highlighted, to show us that this is a, you know, even seeking justice is a protracted process. It can take years, it can take decades in order to get some recognition that the government failed. Just building on what Vicky said about the care homes, look, it was announced yesterday that the health and safety executive were looking at 52 cases in, in care homes, right? Now, throughout this whole crisis, all of us know anecdotally, and never mind anecdotally, the number of documented cases of employers who have not protected, who've broken the law and not protected adequately through social distancing or, or provision of, of, of PPE, their employees, and I'm thinking particularly about building sites, call centres, warehouses, there's been a number of, you know, without naming the names of the employers, but there's a number of cases that I'm sure a lot of listeners could uh, point to. There's not been one single prosecution or even enforcement action yet by the health and safety executive. And, and that's another way in which I think this, this that's another government agency which, which really stands uh, responsible for, for failing to act and through its inactions, essentially encourage employers, employers to do what they want. So if there are 52 investigations in, in care homes, I think we also need to see where there has been negligence. Obviously, a lot of care home workers are really up against it, but where their employers have put them in a dangerous situation and that's led to, to, to illness and death, they have to be prosecuted. Whether they will is another question because the HSE has not done anything yet. Well, then it all comes down to enforcement, which is lamentable. Is it not the case that most companies could expect a visit from the health and safety executive about once every 300 years? It's not, it's not quite as much that, but it's not far, it's not far off. I think um, my colleague of mine, Steve Toombs, did the, did the calculation. I think it was two, two, every, once every 256 years or so. Yeah. But like the case of Grenfell, care homes is not that different because the care home sector is built on an outsourcing economy. The bulk of care workers are outsourced. So obviously the problem there and the risk there is that care workers, the government knew very well and social care managers knew well also that care workers are going to be looking after patients, are going to be looking after residents in care homes and they're going to be looking after several residents across several care homes in one shift. And so that outsourcing economy has enabled those employers to reap profits from that model of employment, right? Meanwhile, and we know this, those workers are mostly precarious and those precarious workers are earning half the salary uh, compared to their permanent you know, co-workers. So we have to also look, I think as part of this 
you know, this devastating impacts of COVID, we also have to look at the economy of the labour force within the social care sector. You mentioned the impact of government policy on care homes, and I know that a lot of pensioners on Merseyside are incredibly angry, and they will soon want to channel that anger politically. What kind of route do you think they should pursue to get justice for all of these unnecessary deaths? Well, there's there's two things, obviously. Um, you know, they need they need answers from the government. They need answers why the government made the decision to discharge patients from the hospital to care homes at the height of the pandemic, known full well from neighbouring countries like Spain, Italy, Sweden, Belgium, that that was highly dangerous. They need answers, okay? That's the first resolve. The second is change. The, the sector needs to change. The workers themselves are not at fault. The workers themselves are part of the inequality that is rife through the social care sector. But what COVID has exposed is that how that impacts on levels of quality of care. And that's not the workers' fault. That's by virtue of the fact that social care managers and social care employers are expecting care workers to move between multiple different care homes in one day in order to provide you know a normal shift a normal routine shift of, of of looking after care home residents and that has to change and that is the political avenue in order to get justice and in order to get answers and in order to explore and change what may or may not happen down the line and prevent that from happening ever again because that's the point these these deaths that are occurring in care homes and and with COVID more generally, they're preventable. Can I add to that? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, there is a thing if, you know, if we think about, you know, also just the organisations through which you seek justice, you know, and we've, we've talked about the kind of legal institutions and, and how, you know, they're, they're never really going to be the, the answer to, to struggles for, for people who are never going to get a fair hearing. But, but you know, if we think about the organisations that the, the, the people most affected are in, so trade unions representing vulnerable workers, pensioners associations which, which represent older people, I mean, I think there is a level at which people are going to have to work together here in unprecedented ways. And, and one of the failures of the trade union movement, in, in, I think historically, this is not about one particular trade union, but generally the movement is that it segregated worker struggles off from the rest of the community. And, and what we've seen in this public health crisis is that the, the workers face are precisely the same vulnerabilities that, that people in the community, obviously to different extents. And I think there's a similar thing to be said about the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and how there has to be an increase in solidarity, really, because, of course, what, you know, what uh, black and minority ethnic people in this country uh, and in those communities in this country have faced is incredible, incredible rates of illness uh, and death. And that's partly about the conditions they, they work in. It's partly about the, the conditions that they, that, they, that they live in, but it's, it's largely about institutional racism. So to have, to have a united front on this, the, I think we need to have a higher level of solidarity and connection across different representative organisations that, we, that, that, we've, that we've had before. We kind of saw that in Liverpool. You know, you had 7,000 people on the Black Lives Matter demonstration, which was led by black people in Liverpool, but had the support of a huge 
cross-section of, of the community and a huge number of, of, of people from different backgrounds, particularly young people. Professor David White there and Vicky Cooper. Later on in the programme, Julie Lyon-Taylor will be talking about campaigning for justice for all of those unnecessary deaths. So stay with us. Cleaners are a vital and essential part of the NHS. And recently, Ian Byrne, MP for West Derby, spoke of one cleaner in particular. It was going into hospitals and trying to organise outsource cleaners uh, from a multinational company. And it was a real eye-opener for me about what we actually experienced within the hospitals, the fear of organising, of becoming organised trade unionists, of trying to fight for better terms and conditions. And it was, it was that fear factor which, which has always stayed with me. And it was, it was mostly women, uh, migrant workers that we, were, that we were trying to organise. And, you know, they felt as though uh, at times they, it was hope, uh, hopelessness and they felt as though they were at the bottom of the pile and treated as such. And it was, you know, it was difficult to organise in, in them circumstances. But the fighting spirit of the people uh, is something that's always stood with me. And I think COVID has hopefully focused people's minds on what people like the cleaners in the NHS are actually where, you know, and, and what they actually do. So I hope there's been a, a perception change in society about job worth and what people are. You know, we when Priti Patel stood at the dispatch box and talked about low-skilled workers. You'd like to think that's now all being turned on its head. And and for me, you know, there's one particular story which I'm going to relate to you. And every time I see Tory MPs clapping for the carers, clapping for the NHS, I always see a picture of Frida's uh, face in my mind because she was a victim of outsourcing. She was a victim of what they'd done to the NHS. And I'll just go over this. So Frida was a was a resident in West Derby, uh, where I'm actually the MP now. And she was she was a she was a cleaner uh, with a company in the Royal Liverpool Hospital. It had been outsourced a few years back, and she'd lost her sick pay. So Frida then got cancer. Uh, she got lung cancer. So she had to go in for the operation. It was life or death surgery. So she goes in for the operation. Bear in mind, she worked in the hospital as a cleaner. Everyone knew her. She'd been there for years as a, an NHS worker when it was insourced. So she goes to the operation. She comes out in recovery, no sick pay. She spirals into debt. And then after so many months down the line, she gets evicted. So she gets evicted from her home because of the circumstances. She simply got ill as a cleaner in an outsourced company with no sick pay. So then she recovers to a degree. She loses the house because of the debt. So she's then homeless. Then she gets to be a care into the cancer. She's end up sofa surfing. And her last days on this earth were actually, as I said, sofa surfing, uh, terrified that she had to get back to work uh, to get an income. And she passed away. And it was a woman who devoted her life to the NHS. But unfortunately, because of the ideology of outsourcing, she was a victim of that and that's what I would, I would I'm going to open you know she was because she may have recovered if she would have had sick pain would have had the ability to, to to rest and not worry about what was going to come down the line and you know Frida's story is something which I find absolutely you know so potent it's so powerful because for me that's 
what the Labour Party was going to bring to an end, which was the outsourcing. So that's that's something which I wanted to share, and it shows my passion for the NHS. I'd like to thank all NHS workers for everything that they've done for us over the last 72 years and continue to do. And my God, how we've got to fight for it, and we've got to keep it, and we've got to make sure that we don't lose it. Ian Byrne there talking about the human cost of outsourcing. Frieda's story is indeed a powerful and potent reminder of the consequences of the pernicious policies of this Tory government. The Labour Mayor of Tower Hamlets is seeking to impose new contracts on its council workforce. Today is the sixth day of a rolling strike action that is gathering support from around the UK. The proposed new contracts have been overwhelmingly rejected by the workforce. They will seriously erode terms and conditions of employees, many of whom have been putting their own lives at risk by keeping services going during the pandemic. Indeed, some council workers have already died from the coronavirus. At a recent online strike rally, Merseyside pensioners sent a message of solidarity to the strikers. My phone screen is full of messages of solidarity that we have received from people via the Unison website. Um, and um, to be honest with you, we've received, well, let's have a look what the latest figure is, uh, 71 messages of solidarity from trade unions, um, CLPs, uh, union groups at schools and from individuals um, just in the last three or four days. Uh, and I think we're going to move on now to hear a little bit from some of the people who are in the meeting who are here to offer solidarity. Uh, but I also want to read a couple of the statements that we've received because um, we've received them from all over the place. Uh, Merseyside Pensioners Association says, be assured that Merseyside pensioners are in solidarity with you today. Um, your strike action is a brilliant response to the iniquitous policies of Tower Hamlets Council. The workers united will never be defeated. At the rally, author of the acclaimed book, Global Health versus Private Profit, John Lister reflected on how the government was using the pandemic to make money for private enterprise. And we're fighting for the life of the public sector. And uh, we, we've never needed public services more. But this government clearly has a very different agenda. And what we've seen is for the we had 10 weeks in which ministers were uh, photographed with all of us clapping the NHS and social care staff and saying how wonderful they all were. While all the while behind the scenes, they were shelling out billions in contracts uh, to unfit private companies for a whole range of services. Contracts are undermining our NHS and our public health. And among them, we had £350 million almost to uh, contracts for Nightingale hospitals, like the one down the road in, uh, in East London. Uh, Nightingale hospitals that hardly opened at all because they had, there was not enough NHS staff to run them without actually closing down existing NHS services. Uh, and hardly opened at all but, and, and treated hardly any patients. But £350 million uh, spent on that uh, useless exercise. We've had hundreds of millions have been spent on contracts for PPE procurement, including awarding small obscure companies with no appropriate experience, few if any staff and no assets have picked up contracts as large as £108 million for supplying PPE. And uh, we've also seen 
tens of millions of pounds worth of PPE that have been procured this way turn out to be useless and unsafe to actually use and having to be destroyed. This is waste that is actually potentially threatening the lives of health workers and frontline care staff. We've had millions paid to Deloitte and contractors like Serco, Sodexo, Mighty and G4S to make a total hash of testing people for COVID. And that's been a total shambles and numbers are still not adequate the, the, and still no proper accounting, accounting as to what's happened there. We've had millions more to private laboratories to process the tests, bypassing the existing public sector laboratories and, and, and systems and bypassing the capacity and experience of lo local level in the NHS and in local government. We've had £90 million to Serco to screw up the tracing and contacting of people who might have been infected. And it turns out, in fact, 90% of the work that has been done here is actually being done by local government, public health experts who are actually doing the track and tracing, Serco simply picking up the money and delivering, delivering nothing. And £12 million for an app that doesn't work and has now been abandoned, the much famous app that was trialled on the Isle of Wight. So privatisation is not simply an abstract question here. It's actually means that we still don't have a viable system for tracking and tracing uh, and, and isolating people with COVID, uh, even as the government eases the lockdown and puts us all at further risk. So this is a really important thing. It matters to everybody. Now ministers want us to clap again for the NHS on Sunday for the 72nd birthday at five o'clock. But meanwhile, we now find that they're preparing to launch even more huge, even bigger contracts, five billion over two years for testing services, five billion up to five billion for the NHS to rent 8,000 uh, private hospital beds, while we've got 35,000 NHS beds still closed and not being used. Paying through the nose to prop up private hospitals that are actually parasitic on the NHS, while NHS facilities are still not being reopened. So this is completely unacceptable. And so as, as, as obviously many of us will want to applaud the NHS at five o'clock on Sunday, but as campaigners, we know that type of clapping is not enough to actually get the changes that we need. So that's why, as, as Anna said, tomorrow, tonight in London, tomorrow, uh, right across the country, and on Sunday, there will be events that we're, we're arranging, which actually mark the NHS anniversary. And uh, local events will be socially distanced all around the country tomorrow. On Sunday from 3.30, we have a national rally online uh, with a whole range of speakers, including at Unison uh, nationally. Uh, the unions are supporting this. Campaigns like We Own It and, uh, and uh, People's Assembly are also supporting Keep Our NHS Public and Health Campaigns Together. It will be a broad-based rally, and we're launching an appeal and a campaign into the autumn for a rescue plan to get our NHS back running again, delivering services as well as COVID services and treating the patients who have been now stacked up on waiting lists that are now almost doubled in the period of the, of the COVID epidemic. We need to actually get that rescue plan publicized and start to build campaigning for it because we can't wait until another election removes this government. We have to actually get our NHS up and running for those who need it now. All the details about the rescue plan, the rescue plan itself and the, and the events over the weekend are on the Keep Our NHS Public website, keepournhs.com, keepournhspublic.com. And I do urge anyone who can to support us. And we will continue to support you in your fight for justice, for, for, for proper treatment, 
from what should be a, a, a council that stands up for local people rather than kicking some of the most vulnerable of its own staff in the teeth. So well done, keep up the fight, we're with you. Please join us and let's fight together for an NHS that can look after us all and let's keep our NHS public. The strike in Tower Hamlets has the support of the local Labour MP, Afsana Begum, who has joined the picket lines. Uh, we're going to have a couple more speakers um, and then um, bring things to a close. But I'm just going to go over to Absana Begum, who has received a message of solidarity from uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Absana. Thank you, Tom. It's just a message from Jeremy Corbyn, um, former Labour Party leader, of course. He says, uh, greetings and solidarity to Unison in Tower Hamlets. COVID-19 has exposed the inequalities here and around the world. Uh, the hero heroism of health and care workers has saved lives as well as local workers at the council. We should be raising pay and funding public services, not attacking conditions of those on whom we all rely. Solidarity, Jeremy Corbyn, MP. Thank you very much for that, Absana. Um, and thank you to uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, it's been fantastic to see him uh, back on protests and picket lines um, over, the past, um, over the past couple of uh, months. So I think we're going to bring in one more solidarity speaker, then start to bring um, the meeting to a close. Now, this solidarity speaker uh, is someone that I think many of you may already know, and uh, that is Phil Maxwell. Um, now, Phil is a former councillor in Tower Hamlets. He's a fantastic filmmaker, and he is a friend of our branch. So uh, it's fantastic of Phil to join us. Phil, if you could unmute yourself, please. It's really marvellous to see you all striking today to defend your right to decent working conditions. And it's great to hear that other workers have not crossed your picket lines. How good is that? Your action is an inspiration to the rest of the Labour movement. As a former Tower Hamlets Unison steward and a retired Unison member, I am so proud of what you are doing because your actions are defending the public services that we all depend on, particularly pensioners like myself. Like millions of pensioners, I've been shielding from Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock since March. And to be honest, I'm so pleased I no longer live in Tower Hamlets, because if I did, I would have to shield from John Biggs. I've known Mr Biggs for many years, and I have to say, as a former Tower Hamlets Labour councillor, that I am not surprised that he would support a scheme that attacks Tower Hamlets workers and then come up with the name of Tower Rewards. It's just ludicrous. All of you are fighting for all of us, and I wish you well. It's great to see so many familiar and new faces. Good luck and solidarity to you all. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for that, Phil, um, for um, your comments and for probably the best pun of this rally, the best joke of this rally. So uh, 
Thank you so much. Stay with us because MPA Chair Julie Lyon-Taylor will be joining us shortly, but first it's time for some music from Minnie Stacy and George Casey. Swells where the grifter earns commission Working all the best hotels There's a chippy on the sidewalk But her ways are in for dig She pulls a battle from her purse And as she takes another swig She says, I thirst for an investor Whose portfolio is big Because I'm bringing home the bacon And I'm sleeping with the pig There's a cop around the corner Got St. Patrick in his blood He's a shamrock of a sheriff And a friend of Robin Hood He plays both sides of the fence And an offense will always pass For a percentage of the action Or a pleasing piece of ass And so when Marion gets laid She's made to fake an Irish jig Because she's bringing home the bacon And she's sleeping with the pig Stash already taken From the guys who love to cruise But he's making her the offer That she really can't refuse And so she's bringing home the bacon It's a regulated gig And there's no need to creep in Cause there's nobody peeping All the customers sleep in late to keep the pig we're talking that was Piggy Goes to Market written and played by Graham Casey and sung by Minnie Stacy. in the past week or so one of our members has been the victim of online hate abuse The MPA has zero tolerance of abuse against any of our members, whether it's online or offline. An injury to one of our members is an injury to all of us. 
And here is the chair of the MPA, Julie Lyon-Taylor, making that absolutely clear and proposing the future direction of the Merseyside Pensioners Association. I make this statement not in defence of the Merseyside Pensioners Association. We need no defence from the absurd and insulting comments made by a couple of members of the Labour Party. I am proud to be chair of this organisation and in awe of the remarkable work of the membership. Every member has the interests of the working class and justice for all at the heart of what they do. Our reputation as campaigners is high within the Labour movement and especially with the trade unions and remains unsullied by ridiculous allegations and totally unacceptable language. Also, I make this statement with the proviso that all will be put to the membership to debate, amend and vote on in our usual democratic way of the Merseyside Pensions Association. First, we will and must return to our organisation when conditions allow. The recent events of shutdown, deaths and the appalling death rate in care homes and care sector impel us to do this. The seasoned campaigners of the MPA have to take up and lead the way forward to a different society. Whilst we are non-party political, we do adhere to the slogan on our banner, the slogan that the late great Jimmy McLaughlin created for us. Merseyside Pensions Association, fighting for pensioners and all who come after. I therefore propose the first on our agenda when we return is the care system and treatment of the elderly. While that system, and I mean the whole system, not just the homes, has the most wonderful, dedicated, underpaid and badly treated workers, the government has treated the elderly with a lack of concern and utter contempt for their lives and lifestyle. We need to draw up a plan of action to recruit allies to our cause, to hold to account those responsible for the deaths of so many directly caused by the careless attitude of the government towards the older generation. For this, we need to plan events, hear from MPs and councillors what they propose and how they will uphold the human rights of the elderly, how they are going to hold the government to account. I have some ideas on how we should go about this, but we need everyone to participate in the best way to do this. Secondly, many of us as trade unionists or individuals have done our best to fight the many injustices which flourish in our society. This work must continue. Trade unions and campaigning organisations must continue to feel the MPA is an organisation that they can turn to for help and support. In particular, we will protest, defend and help working class people in their fight for decent pay and conditions of work. We know that society as a whole needs these workers to function and we owe them an enormous amount for their dedication. I cannot leave this statement without reference to the Black Lives Matter campaign. What a magnificent response and how heartwarming to see the young in action. They have much to teach us and I'm already in touch with the Liverpool Black Lives Matter group and have got a speaker lined up 
for when we do finally meet again. I look forward to our first meeting altogether, which while showing respect for those who lost their lives, will be a celebration of the courage and fortitude of working people. And of course, a celebration of the resilience of the Merseyside Pensioners Association. In the meantime, we are in the process of organizing a Zoom meeting. Watch this space. Sorry, Mr. Johnson, but you did not succeed in wiping out this proud group of Merseyside pensioners, like the rest of the people of this city who have fought injustice without ever giving up over many, many years. We will continue this tradition. Here's to our return, which will happen. Take care, stay safe, and plan for a better future for pensioners and all who come after. You can listen to all of the Merseyside Pensioners podcasts by going to the Merseyside Pensioners YouTube channel. There's also some films you can watch featuring the campaigning work of the MPA. You can also hear us each week on Liverpool Community Radio FM 106.7 or online. You can find us on Anchor FM. Remember, if you have something to say, then contact me by email at maxwellphotouk at yahoo.co.uk. Thanks for your company today. Remember, you are not on your own. We are stronger together because we understand the meaning of solidarity. Until next time, stay safe. And I leave you with music and some socialist reflections from Merseyside pensioner Phil Newton. Okay, Phil. um, Did um, Joe Hill say, uh, after I've died, don't mourn, but organise? This is from his little red book, songbook, or the little red songbook. And there's a, a picture of Joe Hill holding a notice in his hand. If workers took a notion, we can stop all speeding trains. Every ship upon the ocean, we can tie with mighty chains. Every wheel in the creation, every mine and every mill, Fleets and armies of all nations will at our command stand still. And I was thinking about the work ethic in that because it reminds me of um, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, the ex-deputy leader, is going into the music industry. And uh, industry meaning, being is that meaning industrious or selling um, art for a profit? Then it reminds me of Jeremy Corbyn being asked by a little girl in uh, a Liverpool string orchestra when he sat in and had to go on a violin. He said to her, how am I getting on? And the little girl looked up at him and said, well, you need some paying attention, attention paying to your bowing. And he looked back at her and he said, well, yes, but there's work in progress. So I assume he meant he's practising, I suppose, like his kids, uh, play music, and he's taken the uh, the example. So here's Joe Hill, <clears throat> the tune on the violin.
I'll do it again to obliterate a couple of long notes. I'll start it again. Again, again. <laughs> Got it right that time, I think. <laughs> 